0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. So glad you're here today. Uh, you know, we have been in this series called Stranger Things, and uh, I told you a couple weeks ago that that's not really my TV uh, watching. I, I really have never even seen Stranger Things, but, uh, but what I did do is do a little research, and uh, we learned that it's about a, a little town in Hawkins, Indiana, and how the science lab there inadvertently, accidentally found a portal into an alternate universe called the Upside Down. Now, based on that concept and that idea, we, we kind of thought, boy, this really is fitting for where we are today because we are in today what's called a post-Christian culture. And that means that those of you who are Christ followers, that you have this idea all the time that, that something strange is happening today. You know, I grew up in a time where it was very normal for kids to not even have sporting events on Sunday morning or on Wednesday because the communities believed, hey, we're going to have church, and so we're not even going to compete against that. Well, we are well, well, well beyond that today, aren't we? And, And it's a very, very different culture. And so what we're trying to do in this series is say, given all of that, given the change in our culture, how do we as followers of Jesus respond? I mean, how do we respond in a time like this? And as Josh and I were talking through, well, what would be the best way to kind of capture this? Let's look back at a time, maybe in the Old Testament, where God's people were in a strange place. Where God's people were experiencing stranger things. And, And really, where you become really the kind of the minority in the culture. Jesus talked about this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And I think the closer that we get to the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, it seems like there are fewer and fewer people, the narrower road that leads to Christ, and it seems like so many are on the road to destruction. And so given that, we're wondering, well, how do we respond in the middle of this? And in this series, we've looked back to some really key characters in the Old Testament. And if you'd allow me for just a minute, I want to walk you through a bit of a history lesson because if you're going to really understand what was going on, you kind of have to understand the context of what is going on. And I even included a map right there. There it is. And, 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 and this is really... When you're talking about the the kingdom of Israel, the Israelites, by this time, because of the unfaithfulness of God's people, they were divided into two kingdoms. uh, They were there in Samaria and Jerusalem, essentially the upper kingdom, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, of Israel was uh, called Israel, and it was taken captive by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah was overrun by a king in Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar around 586 B.C., and he takes the best and the brightest with him to Babylon. Now, during this period of time, several books in the Old Testament are written. Uh, The book of Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, and also the prophecies of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are all written during this time of exile for the people of God. Now during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, this is where we're introduced to those guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we learned about two weeks ago, and also this individual named Daniel that Josh did a great job talking about last week. But God is merciful. And after 70 years in exile, God had prophesied that I will bring you back to Israel, and by the way, did you know that is actually a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, don't you love how specific God is, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. And sure enough, 70 years exactly after the Israelites had been exiled to Babylon, the first group of refugees come back. Now, how did that happen? How did they come back? Well, Babylon was overthrown by the Persians, and those of you who have been involved in our Persian-American dinner, uh, our Iranian friends, they know this history very well also. Cyrus the Great became the king of Persia, And, and I provided for you a little chart here today. Just stay with me, friends. We won't always be in history, but in this little chart, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he's the one who overtook Jerusalem, took the best and the brightest with him. This is where you're introduced to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And then a few years later, we were introduced to Cyrus the Great, who was from Persia, who overtook Babylon and supported the return of God's people. God had worked in his heart that maybe the temple in Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And this is where we're introduced to a guy named Zerubbabel. If you're looking for a good name, you're pregnant today, you want a good name to name your child, there it is. Just call him Z. And then there's Darius. And Darius is another king in, uh, in, in Persia, and he also supported the rebuilding of the temple, which we're going to see in a little while. And they're going to be introduced to a king named Xerxes, and he was influenced by Esther to save the Jews. And that happened in the middle of this. And after that, we're introduced to Arctic Xerxes, And he supported both Ezra and Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem. So these characters on the right, except for Zerubbabel, poor Zerubbabel, we even left him out. But on the right, this is our series. And this gives you the history of what is happening at this time in the life of the Israelites. Now, here they are in Babylon, and and God is going to send three waves of them back over a period of a number of years. The first wave of Israelites were led by Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem. And they went back to rebuild the temple. Now, as we talk about this, I want you to be reminded that that as we walk through the story of Ezra, it is such a great book because it captures a lot of this history. Those of you who are into history... It gets a little jumpy. He jumps back and forth between kings a lot. It's a little confusing, but the events are recorded there in the book of Ezra. And if you're ever interested in reading more about that, I think, uh, I think uh, it's an interesting history lesson in the Old Testament. Now, it's easy for us, I think, when we read stories like Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, Ezra restoring worship in God's temple, Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple of God— Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's And When we read this, it is very, very typical for us to do what we often do in kids' church when we talk about these stories. And we really talk about Daniel and how great it was for Daniel and how great Nehemiah was. And oftentimes, it's easy for us to make them the hero of the story. And what I want to do today is remind all of us, that as great as Nehemiah and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, that God is the story of the Bible. God is the hero. And as we walk through the story of Ezra today in the book of Ezra, what I want to do for you is just point out how God, God is the hero of the story of Ezra. Let's start with Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, which I just read, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. And the book of Ezra is really retelling this history of the people of God as they return from exile. And the first thing I want you to notice is that God is on the move. And here's what I mean by that. God was working ahead of time in the heart of Cyrus. And by the way, not just during his lifetime. Did you know Cyrus, king of Persia, is actually prophesied in the Old Testament as well? Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, let let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let the foundations be laid. Now that prophecy by Isaiah was written 150 plus years before Cyrus was even a glimmer in his daddy's eye. I mean, that is the kind of prophecy that God laid out for them. In other words, God was working generations ahead and God was on the move well before anybody else ever realized. Imagine that. God knew that he would use Cyrus to send his people back to Israel. Now, the people of Israel wanted so much to come home, but at that time they couldn't. And uh, I, uh, I heard this little funny story about this family that had a number of kids from the neighborhood in their home playing with their children, and uh, they were, you know, all the kids were playing together. And uh, it got later and later, and finally the dad yelled, hey, you guys all need to go home, go home. And a bunch of kids came downstairs, ran out the door, and he was like, see you guys later. And, and uh, you know how it is, as soon as the, as the kids leave uh, the dad's like, to his own kids, hey, listen, it's time for you guys to get up, go to bed. I want to see those lights out in five minutes. About 10 minutes later, he sees a shadowy figure at the top of the stairs, and a uh, little voice just says, can I? The dad's like, no, you need to get in that room right now. I'm telling you, right now, a couple minutes later, same little sheepish voice came out, shadowy figure, can I? No, you get back in that room right now. Don't make me come up there. You guys, you guys have been there, right? And about that time, the doorbell rang. It's this neighbor, and he said, hey, have you seen my son, Jimmy? And the dad was like, no, he's not here. And uh, they're all gone, and suddenly this little desperate voice from upstairs said, I'm up here. He will not let me leave. He has locked me in my room. (laughs) Now, that's kind of where Israel was. They kind of felt like we are trapped. We can't get out. And way ahead of them ever going home, God was already On the move. God was already at work. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia. After decades of isolation and desperation and exile, God orchestrated the events of mankind and God was on the move. And you know what that tells me? I don't have to have all the answers, I don't have to be in control. Friends, God is on the move. And I think sometimes in our culture, in our day, where we are in a post-Christian culture in America, what we see is so many things that are so foreign to a lot of us, stranger things. It is easy to forget that you are not the one in control, that God himself is in control. And no matter which side leads one or the other, no matter what kind of decisions are made, what we realize is God is the one who's on the move. How many of you have ever, ever read the book by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or maybe you saw the movie? And uh, I love how one author describes this as they talk about, the, of course, the winter representing the desperation of our world. The white uh, uh, the witch represents Satan, and, and, uh, and then, of course, Aslan representing our great Savior and God. And, and one author writes it this way, winter envelops Narnia. It's always winter and never Christmas as it has been for longer than anyone can remember. I'm starting to think maybe we're back in that. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's like zero degrees outside. And he says, how long has it been since also Narnia had any hope? The world is cold and gray and miserable. Rumors begin to spread. There's a feeling in the air. Something has changed. It's not a visible change. The world is still as bleak as it has been for ages, and yet something is different. Hearts quicken, souls stir, a presence that has been absent for so long is back. Hope rebuilds, it's a faint hope, a hope on a, de- on a desperate longing. A hope that is fragile and yet a risk of blowing away in an icy wind of an accursed winter. And yet the good animals and the creatures of Narnia can feel it and they know that Aslan is on the move. The character in C.S. Lewis's story that represents Our great God and Savior is moving in the midst of the winter. And friends, what I want to tell you is, don't you ever forget that God is on the move. You may feel like giving up, but God is on the move. You may feel like nobody understands your pain, but God is still on the move. You may feel like you are forgotten and nobody notices, but God is on the move. You may feel that our culture is lost, our politicians are corrupt, our future looks dim. But church, don't you ever forget that God is on the move. He is working ahead of us. We have to be reminded today that no matter what happens that surrounds us in this world, we have to be reminded that our God is still in control and that He is working ahead of us in ways that we would never even know or possibly even imagine. And so the first group of refugees go back to Jerusalem And under Zerubbabel, they start to rebuild the temple. They rebuild the altar. They rebuild the foundation of the temple. And it is such an emotional thing because some elderly people that now 70 years have been in exile, they remember what the glorious temple looked like before. They experienced the presence of God and they wept and they worshiped. So loudly that people couldn't tell the difference between their weeping and their worship because it was so passionate. And yet, This little group of individuals, some enemies of the people of God, started to get in among the people and started to kind of uh, discourage them and create falsehoods and gossip about them. Ezra chapter 4 verse 4 says, Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. And sure enough, it worked. For 14 years it worked. They stopped rebuilding. Have you ever been there? You're doing such a good work for the Lord, but something or usually someone discourages you. Anybody ever had that at work? You ever had that when you're working for the Lord? I, I know I've told it before, but my very favorite story to tell about a little critic of mine happened in my first ministry, and uh, we only had 15 people at church. That's what we started with. 13 for Sunday school, 15 for church. I thought that was pretty good retention rate. And... Um, I was there and was there for four years and uh, did everything. I mean, mowed the lawn with the big old Ford tractor, and we had several acres, and we, I cleaned the baptistry. Um, I used to say that I didn't know how to clean the baptistry, and I didn't know. there was this old well water, and um, I didn't. I put bleach in it one time, a whole bottle of bleach to make it clear. Baptized this lady one time. She's a brunette. Before she came out, she's blonde afterwards. I don't know what <laughs> happened, but... Anyway, so uh, this, I, I, I was there in that church, just trying to really work and really hard, didn't know what I was doing. I was 22 when I started there, and, and we had a lady, I was playing piano, trying to lead from, I, I mean, everything, because we didn't have anybody to do that stuff, and, and we had a lady came in one day, said, hey, I want to begin to play piano, and I said, that sounds great, and, and then she eventually said, hey, I want to start planning the worship service. I said, that sounds great, go ahead, and she started planning the songs, and one day I planned a little special music, me and a guy named Ben. He was going to play drums, I was going to play piano, we we're going to do a little special music. And I let her know before church, I was like, hey, listen, he and I are going to do a little special music. Well, somehow that made her really mad, really offended her. I had no idea, but right at offering time, when she normally plays, she says, I'm not playing. She sat right next to me next on the front pew. She said, I'm not going to play today. She said, you can figure it out. I was like, everybody's just looking at me. I ran back to Jerry Krebs on the soundboard. I was like, Jerry, put a tape in. This is when we had tapes. And I said, put a tape in. I don't know what to do. And so we played a tape. And after church, she came to my office. She slammed the music down, books down on my desk. She pointed her finger in my face. She said, she said, you are not my spiritual leader. My husband is my spiritual leader. She said, you just try to, you just try to take over, and you just want to be cute and charming. I just want to tell you, you are so immature. And I said, liar, liar, pants on fire? (laughs) No, I didn't say that. I didn't really say that. No, the truth is, I wept. I mean, like, after she was gone, I was defensive. Like, no, that's not true. And like, here we had, like, 15 people. So critical. She came for weeks afterwards. She wouldn't shake my hand, just looked at me, walked out, and walked right on by. I went to their house several times. Let me me just put it this way. Back then, that devastated me. Today, I'd be like, eh, whatever. You know, but uh, it kind of changes over time, but... But you know what? When you got one person, I call my mom and dad. I say, oh, mom, dad. I'm "I'm trying to do all this stuff. And my mom was like, I can't believe that woman. Let the devil get in her. I was like, yes, mom. Yes. Criticism. There will always be, anytime you're doing something great for God and God is on the move, there will always be people who try to stop the move of God. Not only is God on the move, You need to realize today that God is more than enough. Sure enough, after 14 years, God once again stepped into time and space and encouraged another king of Persia named Darius to also support the people of God. And he said, like Cyrus, I want you to continue to build the temple of God. And sure enough, they did. And they finished it. And the people celebrated And Ezra chapter 6 verse 14 says, They finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated in dedication of the house of God with joy. God strengthened their hands. He boosted their morale. They finished the building of the temple, and the people wept and worshipped because they realized they could not have done this alone that their God was more than enough. And that is the end of chapter six in the first half of Ezra. And the second half of Ezra, we are now introduced actually to a guy named Ezra. In chapter seven, he comes in on the scene. This is now about 50 years after the rebuilding of the temple. And Ezra chapter seven, Ezra's introduced. And it says in Ezra chapter seven, verse six Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. I want you to remember that phrase. The hand of the Lord was on him. Isn't that what we all want? God's hand to be on us. We see that same, ver- that same phrase again in verse 27. Praise be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go with me. Ezra is now going to take the second group of refugees back to Jerusalem. And you might ask, why was the hand of the Lord on him? Well, we know because verse 9 and 10 tells us, The gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. There you go. He devoted himself. If you want the hand of the Lord on you, you realize that on your own, you are not enough. But with God on your side, you have more than enough. And friends, that reminds me of the time in the New Testament where two of the apostles, just after the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus where they were now teaching and healing. And they were called in before the Jewish religious leaders on account for this. And it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when those leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. And what I'm saying here is that when you're in an upside-down world, one of the best things to do is stop being on social media and start being with Jesus. Stop being influenced by the many uh, do nothing voices around you, and start being influenced by the one voice who actually can do something in you. I'm telling you, friends, the best way to get right side up in an upside down world is spend time with Jesus. The evangelist Louis Palau describes how this became real to him one time, and it says, "During my first semester at Multnomah Bible School, Torchbearers founder." Major Ian Thomas spoke at our chapel service. He talked about how it it took Moses 40 years in the wilderness to learn that he was nothing. Then one day Moses was confronted with a burning bush like a dry bunch of ugly sticks. Yet Moses had to take off his sandals. Why? Because God was in the bush. Major Thomas said God was telling Moses, I don't need a pretty bush or an educated bush or an eloquent bush. Any old bush will do as long as as uh, I'm in the bush, and I'm going to use you. I won't be, it won't be you doing something for me, but me doing something through you. It was that kind of bush, a useless bunch of dried-up sticks. I could do nothing for God. All my reading and studying and molding myself, Louis Palau writes, after others was worthless unless God was in the bush, only he could make something happen. And when Thomas closed his message that day, Louis Palau said, I ran back to my room and in, my, in tears I prayed in native Sp- my native Spanish. My spiritual struggle was finally over. I'd let God be God and let Louis be dependent on him. The most powerful people in the world are the ones like Ezra who see God's hand in everything. They've come to understand that the gospel which God has provided for us, that yes, we're gonna do our small part in working with God but we're going to rely on him we're going to be dependent on him we're going to realize that not only is God on the move but God is more than enough and so Ezra then as he returns back to Jerusalem he goes with a lot of enthusiasm and by the way he's leading like 5,000 people back he gets back but he realizes the people that were there before him the people who had gone back in the first wave with Zerubbabel, they had become, again, a little bit against God. They had done things that God was not pleased with again. And Ezra chapter 9, verse 2 tells us, they have taken some of their daughters and as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with people around them. And the leaders and officials have led the w- this way in this unfaithfulness. And when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down, appalled. Then everyone trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement. With my tunic and cloak torn, I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached up to the heavens. That's how, that's how appalled Ezra was about the grievous sins. But notice he didn't just say them, he included himself in the people of God. The very thing that got them exiled in the first place, the people had gone right back to. They were intermarrying with individuals who did not believe in God, who wanted them to worship false gods. And that was the very thing that got them in trouble in the first place. And so Ezra just prays before God. God, forgive our sin. We can't do this on our own. And that reminds me once again that God is merciful. And that's the last thing about God from this story that I want you to notice today, and that is that God's merciful no matter how far His people had gone, no matter how unfaithful they were to Him. Walk through the pages of the Old Testament. You're going to see it again and again and again. Israel was unfaithful to God, but God was faithful to His promise. Ezra chapter 10, verse 1. When Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men and women and children, gathered around him, And they, too, wept bitterly. There is this powerful moment where Ezra is praying and confessing, and then everybody responded. You know, oftentimes it takes one person going below the surface before other people will do it. You ever experienced that? You ever been in a conversation that's real surfacey? Hey, how are you? How are the kids? It's fine. It's good to start the conversation that way. But then somebody breaks through. One person says, actually, I'm not doing very well. I said some really hurtful things to my spouse yesterday. And the conversation just takes a whole new meaning. Or you're in a group setting, like a community group or a court group, and everybody's talking about sports or recipes or something else, and somebody says, guys, I'm really struggling. I just, I just got a DUI last night. And suddenly, the conversation just goes deeper, and everybody just lets the barriers down, and there is a realness there. And the Bible says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. It says, just as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And if you really want to break strongholds in your life, if you really want to have breakthroughs in your life, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us how if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Ultimately, when we go to God and confess to Him, He just pours out His mercy on us. And so today we learn that God is merciful. God is merciful to those who love Him, those who fall, those who fail Him. And we know today that He is on the move in our culture. No matter what it looks like, no matter what we from our human perspective might see, God is on the move He's also more than enough for us, friends. No matter what, we realize that God is more than enough. You don't have to do this on your own, and you realize that God indeed is merciful. He forgives us. And we're going to lead now into a time of just worship, where we're actually going to sing a song that reminds us of this very fact. Did you know the Bible says, don't give the devil a foothold? If I ask you today, I said, what's the one thing that you struggle with more than anything else? Right now, in your mind, you would know exactly what that is. Some of you guys would be like, it's an addiction that I have. Some of you guys would be like, I have a foul mouth and I really have to work on that. Some of you guys would be like, it's an issue of pride, it's an issue of greed. Whatever it is in your life, you know right now when I say, what is the thing that's keeping you from a full, complete relationship with God, you would know what that is. And the Bible says, don't give the devil a foothold. And the best way to experience breakthrough, the best way to experience breaking down a stronghold or a foothold is through confession to one another and confession to the Lord. And realize that when you do that, our God is merciful. Listen to this song and worship with us.